I love gaming because it has introduced me to the most interesting human beings that I've ever known in my entire life. Gen Con this year, I'm sitting next to Dave Gross, I'm at the Paizo booth, I'm signing copies of my novel, and a woman comes shrieking out of the crowd and punches me right in the ribs and screams sneak attack at the top of her lungs, causing her boyfriend, fiance, husband, I'm not even sure, to fall down laughing. He'd been acting as the distraction. There's some people who, they're famous and you want to buy them a beer. There's some people that they're famous and you want to hang out with them. I'm just famous enough people want to punch me in the spine and scream sneak attack. That's only because of gaming. There's, there's, no, there's no other way that that ever could have happened. I've devoted my entire life to it and I love every moment of it. My name is Clinton Boomer. I am the Gamerati. Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. This is the Vorpal Network. Welcome to Game After Game, the podcast where we talk about games and how they're being played right now. I'm your host, Tracy Barnett. So, uh, we'll just start off with, uh, who are you guys? Who am I talking to today? Um, I'm Jessica Banks, uh, wife of the famous game designer, Cam Banks. And I'm Cam Banks, husband of famous, uh, wife of famous game designer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my only claim to fame is doing this, and therefore I have no other awesome skills, whereas Jess has multiples, and therefore is, uh... Too difficult to sum up in a soundbite, let's say Extremely. That. You know, <laughs> I, I, I prefer to speak to complex people as opposed to simple ones, so... Well, I'll just tune off then. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the 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 point of of this podcast is to talk about uh, sort of games as they're being played. And I know Jess, you said before we before we started uh, recording all of this that you haven't played in a while. But I also know from following you on Twitter and, and reading your blog that you have definite opinions about games and gaming. And I, I think that those are are still going to be extremely valid. Um, one of the reasons that, that I asked you specifically just to do this in the first place is because I think that we do need to hear more female voices talking about gaming, and so I wanted, because uh, I, I think you're a pretty pretty awesome female voice online, so I wanted to, to make sure I got your perspective uh, at the very least. And and since, you know, Cam's attached to you, and he was there when we started talking, I figured I'd just invite him along for the ride. Yeah. <laughs> not not to mention the fact that, really, Cam and I, as a couple, started by gaming. Um, yeah. I, I, we I, are an Amber Mush romance. I remember seeing that, um, uh, again, just uh, chatter on Twitter, uh, and I think uh, a couple of your blog posts as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll start with my uh, with my first question, and and this one will be more applicable to to Cam likely as as you've got the regular game night. Um, but Jess, I'd like your take on what you would. What <laughs> games are you playing right now? Um, right now, every Thursday, more or less, we meet um, a local game group here in Minnesota meets, and I run Pendragon. Okay. And it hasn't always been Pendragon when I first moved here. Um, in fact, one of the members of the group is Jess's, one of Jess's bosses. 
and she had invited me to this group because, um, well, they all thought it would be cool having me as part of it, okay. but also because they wanted to, to expand um, the people who are playing in it and stuff, just get some more fresh blood into it. So the thing, I didn't start running anything because I wasn't, I didn't really feel comfortable doing that. So we were playing some Savage Worlds to start with, mm-hmm. and I'm not really the biggest fan of Savage Worlds, but the game itself was a whole lot of fun because the setting was really good. Cool. I think that may often be the case for people who are new to games, uh, like I was, essentially. I didn't know all the players very well, but, you know, if it's a fun setting, that's the big grab, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Jess, if you had the chance to, to play right now, what what do you think you would gravitate towards? Um. My favorites are always the most theatrical mm-hmm. games, the ones that have the most sort of madcap fly by the seat of your pants kind of action. The subtitled um, story games. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, with uh, with the much looser, uh, you know, conflict resolution structures, and and I'm not that big into crunch. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer them a little bit more free flowing. Um, the most recent game that I've played was um, a quick one-shot of Ryan Macklin's Mythender at uh, JoshCon, a uh, little birthday house con here in uh, in Lakeville, Minnesota. Yeah, that was just and, recently, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was, um, was it really just last weekend? A couple weekends ago. Yeah, a weekend yeah. or two ago. Time, time's been flying. <laughs> it has. It really has. Um, and that was, a, that was a great deal of fun. Um our time was constrained, so I, I felt like it could have gone on a lot longer. Mm-hmm. But um, that was that was the, the most recent game I've played that really fell into that particular category. Uh, and why do you think you gravitate towards those those story games, Jess? I am really bad in math. <laughs> <laughs> And something about something about the um, for me the most the most engaging and most rewarding aspects of role playing are building complex relationships mm-hmm. both among the players and among the the characters and really weaving multi strand stories and so that's that's what I enjoy most are the games that really support. Uh, that kind of um, imaginative, impulsive kind of play. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and Cam, for, for your group, why Pendragon? Pendragon is my favorite game. Okay, wow, that, that's simple enough. <laughs> well, it isn't as easy as that because okay. I've not really been able to run it uh, with any regularity before. Um, most of the time what happens is that I run a game that I'm testing or playing or writing for, mm-hmm. which makes it seem like work. Yeah. And this time, I could have been running some kind of Cortex thing. I mean, we, we talked about this when we were talking about our next game. And, you know, I had said I wouldn't mind running something. That we all said, well, what should we do? And that's the death knell for some groups, is sitting down and saying, what should we do next? Yeah. All days, it was always D&D, right? So mm-hmm. easy to say, well, I'll do a D&D campaign. And everyone made that whatever character they wanted. No one had any particular connection to each other. It was ridiculous. And But it worked much easier than it is now, where you have to sit down, you've got to have your... Does your group have this person in it? Does it? Can you, you know, what's the relationship between your character and this character? It's all very much more complicated. Yeah. And on top of that, it was stuff that I was working on. It didn't feel like a break from that game. Mm-hmm. So while I sometimes use the, the local group for testing stuff out, I do also want to try and keep that design 
idea flowing in a space that isn't something that I'm responsible for. Yeah, um, I've been, you know, starting my own forays into game design, and I can definitely feel what you're talking about, um, even in my own uh, smaller ways. I, it, it's, it's, it, you don't want your game to become a burden. You don't want it to, like you said, be work the whole time. Sometimes you just want to have fun. And I'm going to be running Marvel a heck of a lot this year because all the different conventions that we're going to. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I want to have my um, free time completely devoted to, to it. <laughs> yeah. And well, I do, I mean, I'm a, Jessica will tell you, I'm a huge armchair Arthurian scholar anyway. And so this is just one way to practice a side of my interests that doesn't necessarily tie in right with work. When yeah. I started my grad school studies in medieval history, it was very difficult to get out of bookstores without him thrusting something vaguely Arthurian or British, you know, ancient British <laughs> history into my hands and saying, I think you need this for your studies. <laughs> I would say, I think you want me to buy this for you. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it covers both bases. So exactly. what's, what's, a, what, what's a couple thousand word, you know, more pages of reading? Exactly. Really, uh, at that point, not much different. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at grad school myself, and, and I... In, in English, and I'm 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 seeing that I'm going to have quite the reading list by the time I'm done. So, yeah, it is quite a different kettle of fish from any undergrad kind of work. It's really, yeah, it's 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 very daunting. I had one seminar my very first semester where we had somewhere between seven and eight hundred pages of reading a week. Mm. And I was completely stressed out for the first couple of weeks until I walked into a conversation among some of the more experienced grad students, and they were discussing which book they chose not to read that week. Uh, and, uh, sort of, <laughs> and we, oh, okay, so we all fill it in for each other. I see how this works. Cool. Uh, and so, Cam, you're you're obviously running uh, Pendragon for that group at this point in time. Right. Um, and Jess, do you usually play or run? Oh, I almost always. Uh, just play. Okay. I've only ever run one adventure ever. <laughs> I'm not. Um, I'm not that comfortable on the other side of the GM screen. I I ran a, a rather bizarre little um, big eyes small mouth adventure. It for... was awesome. <laughs> she has no idea how. Cool. <laughs> it was. It featured a bunch of morning commuters on the trains to Tokyo, uh, receiving secret messages that, in fact, foretold of impending atomic monster doom. <laughs> so, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I I play that. My single GMing experience. It was not handled very deftly, but um, it was very funny, and there were a couple of memorable moments. Very cool. Cam, uh, uh, give us, if you would, a little rundown of the uh, the Pendragon game and sort of what's going on with it. Um, if you have any understanding of what Pendragon has done before, that there's a big, big book called the Great the Grand Great Pendragon Campaign. It is the story of Arthur from before he was born all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. So from and so from his from Uther all the, the way on. Yeah, the birth yeah. of Uther up through Camlin. Right. Okay. So I decided that I didn't want to do that. <laughs> because I'm very contrary. That's too easy. <laughs> now, I, I, I have always been fascinated in Guinevere's side of the story. and sure. f- So I wanted to start things up in Camilliard with Leota Grants before, um, before Guinevere was born. And so my, my story starts out then, and the Uthers are around doing other things, but the knights, the players play, are all from uh, uh, Guinevere's you know, homeland. So. Okay. Cool. Um, what's the 
what's the makeup of the gaming group like? Uh, what, how, how do the players interact with one another, and are there any uh, personalities that need to be managed, of course, without, you know, like, dragging any dirty laundry out? <laughs> so the makeup of my player group. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I have... It's interesting because we decided uh, after a few sessions when not everyone could make it mm-hmm. to our games that we needed to have a, a different way of doing this where if you don't make it one week, it's not going to completely ruin the whole campaign. That's something that I think a ton of groups struggle with, so I think I'm very interested to hear how you guys are handling it. Well, with Pendragon, normally the, the way the game's supposed to work, it doesn't always work out this way, but it's supposed to work is each session is its own is a year of mm-hmm. gaming, of, uh, of uh, uh, game time. Yeah. yeah. Um, you have an adventure in the summer, and then you do the winter phase, which is when experience checks and stuff are rolled, and everyone manages their, their land and their states and things. And then you go next week, just the next year, right? Okay. And eventually, the, the idea is you have this generational play. You raise kids, and then your character knight, your player knight dies, and you start playing your, your son or daughter or whatever else. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, we could just figure out a way that we could have it so that, you know, well, this year, uh, so-and-so's knight is spending all the time doing garrison duty or patrolling their manor estates and things and, you know, doing that sort of stuff. And it didn't matter that he wasn't on the main adventure that everyone else was at. That, I mean, given the way that the game sounds like it's set up, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> Yeah, and the cool part is the way that uh, Greg Stafford wrote the game, he actually incorporated rules to allow people to still advance as characters, even if their player wasn't doing anything that week. Cool. So, you know, I actually had one thing last week when two of the players didn't show up the previous week, so we did an adventure with the the rest of the group. Mm-hmm. And then right before the game started last week, we uh, went over what happened to the other two nights that year, and they went down to... Um, the southern parts of Britain with King Uther and fought with him in a big battle. And it wasn't very long to, to resolve this, but they ended up with like a whole bunch of loot and stuff. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, so they came back saying, well, we had a good time. What did you guys do? <laughs> That's good. I, that, that, that definitely sounds like an elegant solution to that problem. It's good that the system supports that. Yeah, well, and, yeah. and, you know, a couple of players coming back with really disproportionate amounts of loot is really excellent for player dynamics. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, group harmony, uh, <laughs> that always goes so well. Or not. So were, were there any issues from that uh, from that particular no. arrangement? The, the Pendragon is one of those games, one of the few games where I have no problem at all with dice rolling being completely random for things. Okay. Um, the, I don't, I mean, even with D&D, I stopped being interested in random dice rolls for anything at all um, because I, I often felt that you know there's enough random dice rolling in the actual game itself who, who wants to make the characters up randomly sure except Pendragon <laughs> that's the one example that I will say I no you don't get to pick anything you get to roll the dice and you get whatever you get given you so and actually Cam's, Cam's Pendragon uh, affinity is in large part responsible for my preference, although it's almost never indulged, my preference for opposed role systems. Um, There's just something about that that really, um, you know, hits all my logic circuits, and I can uh, really understand exactly how 
I need to resolve whatever, uh, you know, whatever chance is coming up at that point. It's very easy for me to see the contrast among the different stats and, and just simply rose, uh, roll an opposed roll. Um, that's, that's by far my favorite mechanism. Interesting. So uh, if I can digress a little bit and, and dig a little further into that, for games that – because most of the, the quote-unquote story games that I'm familiar with, um, the one that, that comes to mind as being almost a pure story game is Fiasco. You Everything's just sort of resolved at the table, and maybe it's because there's no GM to, to sort of get in the way. But uh, how does your love of deep, rich narrative character interactive stories – work with that firm, hey, it's going to be resolved in this way because the dice said so, logical mindset? That's largely facilitated by having really good GMs. Okay. Um, There are definitely moments in a story where it's fun and challenging as as a player to be presented with an outcome that you have no control over because, frankly, that's the way the universe works. Mm -hmm. And so... In those cases, it's important to have some mechanism for deciding what that outcome is. But as far as satisfaction goes, whether you succeed or fail in the task that you're that you're trying to roll for is almost inconsequential. Um, it's just uh, you know a fork in the road as far as the story is concerned. And I've had cases where a really disastrous failure has been far more interesting Mm -hmm. um, in terms of immediate play and future consequences than any sort of, um, you know, easy success would have been. So it's just, it's that element of chance, which is fun to throw in. Um, Not everybody, I think my, if I have a skill as a, as a player, Mm -hmm. it's that I react well, um, unpredictably, but well, oh, wow. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that's something that makes those occasional random, uh, random roles really work for me. And having a GM that I can trust to know when it's not necessary and when to throw something in at the fork in the road is has been really um, very good. But I think. A lot of that really depends on trust. Um, you trust the group not to take advantage of a bad role. Mm-hmm. You trust the GM to know when it's worth rolling for and when you're, you know, it's better to just go with the theatrical description. Um, what's that, uh, yeah? In, in your gaming history, Jess, what's your? Do you have like a, a group exemplar? Like this was the best group I ever played with, and this is why. Hmm. Um, we had a group of players when we lived in Pennsylvania and and some of the membership swapped occasionally but the the heart of that particular group was Cam and me and um, Clark and Amanda Valentine mm-hmm. um, we met um, Cam met Clark through his work in 99 and we got to be good friends in 2000 and um, we found out that they were um, well Clark was a gamer because we had the one person at my work who um, was bugging both of us about his D&D character. <laughs> Which is, oddly enough, the focus of this, of this podcast is to ask you about your characters. I, well, it's, it's kind of the irony. I love it. Anyway, pardon my digression. Although we, we found him annoying, we didn't find each other annoying, which is a good bonus. <laughs> and so um, 
yeah, so we, we met for the first time, and, and Cam knew that he had, you know, Clark was somebody he could work with, but Amanda didn't have any uh, role-playing experience at the time. She had oh, did she? some games, but not tons. Not tons, I guess. Um, but uh, when Cam told her that he was going to be running uh, an Elizabethan Cthulhu campaign, mm-hmm. uh, he had her at the word Elizabethan, so... Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, with her background in English lit and, and all that stuff. So um, we started this campaign. The other uh, group uh, or the other couple with us at the time uh, were Jim and Shannon Butcher, mm-hmm. uh, who were living in central Pennsylvania for that stretch of years. And um, we know them going way, way, way back. And so um, that group, although, you know, some of the people on the periphery, some of my uh, graduate school mates uh, were also in it, um, but there was, you know, there were some floating people around the edges, um, but that core group um, did the most and had the most fun in a whole bunch of different campaigns and settings and just was consistently the best people I've ever played with uh, in real life. Having been lucky enough to, to meet the Valentines uh, at Origins this past year, I I can only imagine how cool that would have been. So, uh, they're yeah, they're 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 great people. Um, and I'm sure anyone who's familiar with Dresden would would be like, oh my gosh, you game with Jim Butcher. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that, that's that's really cool. But on really good acts, we're actually truly be tiresome and boring people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I you know what you your act is very convincing. I'll give you that. <laughs> Uh, Jim is Jim is a great guy to have as a GM because um, he will tell you how brutal and lethal the games are going to be, and oh my gosh, uh, he'll turn. I will Shannon. kill you instantly. Yeah. I will kill you if and something goes wrong. Shannon will back him up with saying, "Oh yeah, people died and the heads rolled." <laughs> no, he's such a softy. I, mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I purposely had this one character. We had this one game. It was tons of fun, and we were all playing brothers and sisters or cousins. He called it his fan- epic, epic fantasy epic. <laughs> and uh, my character was the black sheep of the family, the youngest one. He was kind of a cross between um, Tyrion Lannister and who else? Some some other kind of rapscallion character. So, but he had a death wish, and that that kind of came out of it in play. I didn't plan him to have one, but he was the black sheep, so he didn't care about the family uh, honor or anything else. But I I couldn't have him. I couldn't kill him because <laughs> there was. It was impossible. Despite all of this nonsense about, you know, this is going to be deadly and stuff, I would do death-defying things, totally suicidal acts, and Jess will back up this one too, yes. I, crazy stuff, and he just didn't die. So <laughs> I call shenanigans on that whole one. Uh... <laughs> um, so to sort of circle back around to the to the Pendragon game, um, I know you said you... you sort of are, are deviating from the stated uh, either area or story arc in the in the main book. Do you have any other uh, house rules that you implement for it? Um, just the, the game sessions in general, how do they tend to run, like length and encounter number and that kind of thing? They're about um, a couple of hours long, three hours long, I think. Um, you know, all of us grown-ups these days with kids and whatever, it's not like the old days where you could just go play on Saturday and all through the night and yeah. crash on Sunday. I um, 
I don't think there's anything about the rules that I have changed except for one thing, and it's because my players were all wimps. <laughs> they wanted some... Cause this is the first couple of sessions we played, they were complaining about how bad their dice rolls were. Mm-hmm. They said, we need some way... Are there any kind of plot points or fate points or hero points or whatever? And this guy said, are you serious? This is Pendrag and you can die horribly at the end of this. <laughs> and the dad wasn't happy. didn't like that very much. So I said, okay, look, I'll give you one... One coin. Everyone gets one coin. If you spend it on yourself, you get nothing, but you can shift your success from a failure to a success or a success to a critical or a fumble to a failure, you know, kind of thing. You can nudge at one thing. So if you fumble, you still, you aren't going to magically get out of it. But if you spend it on someone else to make their die change or their result change, you can get 50 glory. Glory is the kind of XP Mm -hmm. in Pendragon. So they thought, oh, that was great, that's that cool. Now they just conspire to spend it on each other's, you know, they all figure out that they can all, <laughs> you spend it on mine, I'll spend it on yours, and he'll spend it on hers, and so. It, it just becomes one big love fest of let's let's give each other glory. It's basically, let's all automatically get 50 glory per session just based on Cam's willingness to kowtow to our wimpy behavior. <laughs> but other than that, no, nothing else is different. Um, does it use... Uh Maps or minis? Uh, you mentioned coins. Do you use other props as well? No, actually. Um, funny thing, neither Jess nor I ever played with minis or battle maps or anything much until third edition. Yeah. Oh no, no, until Jim, because Jim would run um, Warhammer Fantasy mm-hmm. uh, roleplay and first edition only. And he had quite <laughs> a prodigious collection of minis. Um, yeah. <laughs> probably at least as much because. His wife, Shannon, is a crafting ninja, and so <laughs> painting minis was just another expression of that. So yeah. I think it was probably part of why they had so many. But um, We were so not into that, and then suddenly we played it. And suddenly we were. So, <laughs> And the good news is, I mean, I had just started playing third edition. I wasn't going to do any mini stuff. But we played that, and I said, well, can I just can we borrow some of these battle mats and things? Because I think it really needs to use this now. Mm-hmm. And then I was hooked for I, I did not want to play third edition at all after that without using minis and and battle mats. But no, I don't. None of the games I design now have a need for it. And um, Pendragon doesn't need them either. It doesn't. Have that that that, um, that kind of choice really really resonates with me because I tend to prefer. Well, I'm bad at tactics. I just am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, you, um, I my my first GMing was was in fourth edition and. I had a great time with the prep and running the sessions, but the PCs would wipe the floor with my bad guys every single time. Yeah. Like, it wasn't even a challenge because I had six minds against mine, all of whom were more tactically inclined than me. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, uh, I can't. Yeah, we, we did that with a couple of Cam's big bads. Um. You'd make a bad guy that was so <laughs> great and cool and had all kinds of cool things, and they just surround him on the battlement and kill him. It was like a, a slaughterhouse. To yeah. be fair, he would give us the instruments of their destruction, though. Um, yeah. In his Dragon, his, the extended Dragonlance campaign that he ran, I played a really broken character. Um, not, not psychologically broken, but in terms of what he allowed me to do, mm-hmm. um, he, he imported a character class for me from... From Monty Cook's uh, Arcana Evolved. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, the Akashic. And um, so Stella was the daughter of a, mer- a mercenary captain and um, a genie. 
and the, yeah, and a genie was her father. Um, so already there, you know, so much twink. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she came to be in control of one of the dragon orbs. Um, oh, that's always, yeah. Just, just a minor little prop there. And, uh, she used it to pretty good effect. She, I mean, it, it did, it did unhinge her slightly to use. So she yeah. was aware of that. But, um, in one particularly massive confrontation where there were three dragons closing on the dock where we were fighting off his, really sort of like the, the season boss mm-hmm. <laughs> from like a TV show, you know, this yeah. is the bad for the whole season. Yeah, this is the one that Buffy takes down with the rocket launcher, that guy. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, I took him down with a blue dragon. <laughs> <laughs> she had the rocket launcher. Yeah, yeah she did. And uh, then we needed to dispose of the other two, and I flew them into the, the walls of the tower on which I was standing controlling the dragons. That was probably the twinkiest moment of my entire role-playing career. <laughs> um, uh, Another good example of this sort of teaming up thing, which I'm sure you know what that's what you were saying, a six mm-hmm. minds against one. I, I brought back the guy that they took out <laughs> as a death knight later on, and the Dragonlance death knights are very powerful, like Lord Soth is a death knight. So yeah. yeah. Very, very powerful character, and he had he was already like 19th level or something, and plus death knight template and everything else. They all took a, a moment to time out and had a conversation about how they were going to do this, and they, they took Amanda's character and they piled on her every possible buff or spell or bonus or anything else and cast... And I was like, really? They did a huddle. <laughs> and uh, Jess had something with her orb and, and then everyone asked her this thing and, and it was like, well, if this doesn't work, we'll run in there and do this. So she walks in there and like within two rounds she takes the guy out. <laughs> and I said, seriously? This was... I." Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, what just out of curiosity, what edition of Dragonlance was this? Well, because I was the uh, I had taken. Oh, it was Arcana of also must have been third. Yeah, it was third edition. I uh, Sovereign Press, which is essentially what Margaret Weiss Productions started out as, and, and yeah. we we did the Dragonlance license for third edition. So I was um, I had taken over the, the the lead designer for that product line while everything was going towards Serenity on the other side of things, mm-hmm. and so. Um, I ran that, that campaign for probably like two years. Yeah. And you know, as as I was working on whatever source per time would throw some things out and they would test it out. But really it was a lot of off the rails kinds of fun. Yeah, and I'll I'll you'll pardon me while I geek out for just a just a moment. When I aside from like Lord of the Rings, the first well the fir- the first gaming fantasy novels that I ever read were the Dragonlance books, Dragons of Autumn Twilight and so on that that I got from from one of my cousins, and to this day, that is the only setting to me where dragons are as awesome and scary and just plain neat as they should be in D and D. So there you go. Yeah, that, that's my geek out moment. Um, the only time that has ever not been the case is when someone cast Otto's Irresistible Dance <laughs> on a black dragon in the sewers of this city, and. This was our this was our wonderful wonderful Munchkin player Ed. We love him, and he, I mean, he would just pour over the books hour after hour, and then he would his head would pop out of the book, and he'd be like, "Can I do this?" These are the most affable rules, Laura, I had ever known. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah, but he would come up with these things, and there's no saving throw. There's none. 
And so that black dragon tap danced its way down. There's no snow resistance on it either, was there? Well, no, no, I think there was, but I didn't succeed. Okay. (laughs) So it it was just tap dancing. A tap dancing dragon is just ridiculous. It is. It is. And I'm, I'm, yeah, that's funny. (laughs) We're pretty pretty sure he never came back out of sheer humiliation. Absolute mortification. Yeah, I wouldn't. That would be, I'd go hide. I would go wait until... The good guys had won, and dragons were basically banished. Yep. And then I would I I polymorph into an an orc and live my life in anonymity, <laughs> as as you should. <laughs> um. Anyway, so, so we're, we're talking about uh, Dragonlands, and then and sort of the 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 wrap up, which this can go on as long as you guys wanted to, because it's it's the last question I sort of have is tell me a story about a game that you. Were, that you were in, but I have a specific question for you, Jess, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm asking this, unfortunately, I because I know it's a button that will get pushed when I ask it, because you recently even blogged about it. Tell me about Goldmoon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is, this is where things get slightly political. Um, <laughs> let me just... Oh God! There's just no way to good. Well, the easy the easy way to to couch this is that that Margaret's my boss, mm-hmm. and you know the the Dragonlance uh, story is a favorite of millions. It is a popular thing, but I think we can all probably agree that Goldmoon in the original books was not that interesting. No, she wasn't. She was a a, a vehicle for the staff. Right. Yeah, she was she was the person to carry the discs mm-hmm. and the blue crystal and all of that stuff and that was she was the vehicle. Um in in the books she gets more interesting but I think in gaming she's kind of the girlfriend character, isn't it? Oh Pretty yes. The, really. That horrible stereotype, well, I'll be the one who my girlfriend plays. Well, yeah, and I mean even in the uh the expanded novels like the Prelude series where Riverwind goes underground and finds the guy who's making the Quicksilver Draconians. Yeah, I, I was a big Dragonlance geek for the novels. <laughs> I was, they, they all have their own... You get the story of all the companions, right? And Goldmoon's just this chick in his tribe. There has never been a run-through of those first adventures where any group, no matter how good, really, or bad has presented me with sufficient rationale for why Gold Moon doesn't pack up her toy and go home. Yeah, yeah, you gave the They are they the, are not pleasant people when <laughs> she first encounters them. They immediately embroil her in the worst sort of trouble and then they act like jerks about it to her. Mm-hmm. And if I were her, I would say, I'm so sorry. I'm a queen back home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah. I didn't need this stuff. I don't yeah. need this. As see, he, I got a fiance. He's pretty hot. Mm-hmm. I'm a queen back home. I'm out of here. And and he has the best stats because in first edition he was a ranger, and then we could be a ranger would have pretty high stats. Yeah. So y'all can just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The two of us managed to walk here from wherever we were, way exactly. far away. In these rabbit skin Uggs and this horrible leather bikini. <laughs> And this awful Farrah Fawcett hair, seriously, people. And, you know, just, wow, there were, there was so much I didn't like about her. I think, you know, what does come down to in some ways is it's not just the, the presentation or whatever you call it. I think 
in large part, it's because she was the cleric. And like I was saying, yeah. I think that the game you play in which her being like this was just saying, this princess who chose her boyfriend over her tribe, the whole thing, the backstory, if it was more interestingly portrayed or useful, then the more interesting that character would be. But, it, it but she's completely it. removed from the context of the interesting part of her story. She's also the only character of the companions who, who, is, who aside from Tasselhoff, who doesn't really need a backstory explored, he's, she's the only one who doesn't get her backstory delved into. No, not at all. Everyone else does. Yeah. Her and Riverwind are just like, okay, well, we're here. And in a way, what's interesting is that she she passes on her the, the discs to Alistan mm-hmm. later on, who becomes the actual prophet of Paladine. She doesn't get to do that. She just she's like, oh well, okay, now, now I've I've done my bit, and she kind of drops out of the story for a long, long time. And in, in many ways, that's kind of indicative of I think the the, the fate of some of these characters in D and D at the time, unless you were like a you know really bossy person. Well, and I also, I mean, I also have the post-colonial feminist screed, but um, that's really best saved for, you know, academic conferences. So. <laughs> but I, 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 just, I thought it was interesting because uh, it had been a long while since I visited the Dragonlance world, even in, in my, my remembrances of, of, of reading those novels when I was younger. And when I saw you, uh, you two tweeting about Goldmoon, I was like, ooh, Goldmoon, I know the name. And it was, it all came rushing back, and I hadn't ever really given it that much thought before. So it's very interesting to, to sort of, uh, peel the layers back a little bit and look at the, you know, yeah, I, if Goldmoon should have taken her ball and gone home. Yeah. <laughs> um, she makes, she makes a very good projection screen mm-hmm. for the, for the ideals and the, and, you know, not in, not in any sort of twisted way, but for the fantasies of the reader. Um, she's a cipher. She's very easy to interpret in a whole bunch of different ways, depending on what you want to see. If you want to see the romance, the exiled lovers thing, it's all there. If you want to see the chosen of God carrying, um, you know, a, a magical talisman that can fix the world, she's there. Um, you know, the, the, peaceful, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, what's the Jean-Jacques Rousseau, what's the, the noble savage, she's there. Um, you know, all sorts of different ways of interpreting her. And I think part of it is in fact, that, um, that shiftability makes her not, um, stand up very well in any particular one of those roles. Right. She, she's, she's the, the jack of all trades, master of none when it comes mm-hmm. to being a character. Well, and also the cleric. Yeah. And the cleric. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, well, see, here's the thing. It's so easy to default to her as a cleric healing machine mm-hmm. that you almost don't have to worry about anything else about her, even though everything else would be interesting if you brought it out. Yeah. Because there's no, there's no reward mechanic in AD&D or many D&D ver- ver- versions for her to do that. Plus, from a technical standpoint, she is a broken healing machine. She is she is the ultimate healing machine. Why yeah. wouldn't you defer to that? Yeah, because that staff was... Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I want to say ungodly, but it was <laughs> exactly the opposite. It's grossly overpowered. Yeah. Um, so so. Let, let, we'll, we'll sort of leave, uh, leave that as just a very interesting conversation <laughs> point. And for, for the actual 
uh, final wrap-up. Each of you, as, as you see fit, tell me a story about a game you were in. Something that just stands out, awesome, cool, maybe not so great, whatever. Uh, tell me about a, a game that you were in. Okay. Yeah, I know this is this is the on-the-spot right. because No, that's tra- okay. And also, we're trained as gamers to not tell people about our games. It's true. The, re- the really polite ones just put this stuff away in a little box. You know, that, that um, section of the Nativity story where it says, you know, and Mary um, secreted these things in her heart and kept them, you know, that kind of thing. That's basically yeah. what we do with our character histories once we learn yeah. that nobody else wants to hear them. And, and um, that is exactly what I want to bring to light with this podcast. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, un, you must unlearn what you have learned. Oh my God, this is very Taoist all of a sudden. Um, I know, right? Just immerse yourself. Yeah, um, I had a character camera in a, an extended campaign in. What was the sort of the birthright kind of setting? Birthright. Okay, but with lots and lots of mods and and story. You know, it was it was all his story, but the setting was also pretty heavily um, mangled. <laughs> there, there was a, a it's a series of books by an author whose name is Elizabeth Willey, and she she her first book was called um, I think a well favored man, mm-hmm. uh, and she wrote two books after that which were actually prequels. But her setting of, of Argyle was so interesting to me; it was very Amber like, mm-hmm. but not quite the same. And so I wanted to do Birthright anyway. Well, I didn't really want the Birthright setting itself, so I took all the gods and races and things from Birthright and dropped them into this Argyle thing and mashed it up, and that's kind of what they had to put up with. <laughs> I I played a paladin uh, named Mersha, and she was the queen of her own little land, but the land had been uh, decimated by the forces of evil, whatever the heck they were. I can't even remember at this point. Um but in any case, uh, she was basically um, an errant soldier at that point, um, looking for the resources for a group of heroes that could help her to recover her throne and restore her land. Um, she was very firm, straightforward. I mean, everything you imagine a paladin to be. And the sun goddess was. Her. And her and her goddess was Avani, which was the sun goddess. So she had all these powers of light and fire, um, very flashy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a, a warhammer that she used um, as her primary weapon. I mean, she was just, she was bad, 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 bad. She was an awesome character. And probably the most um, defining moment for her in the course of the game was when they were besieged in a city uh, and by the by their opponents, and there was no good solution. There was no way they could defend the city anymore. They simply didn't have the resources or the people. And they, the rest of the group was debating the uh, most orderly flight <laughs> by mm-hmm. way of secret tunnels to just get their themselves out of the city alive. Um, and Mersha said no. She said, uh, this city has no one else to defend it. It still has residents. Um, if, they, if the city falls without an effort to fight back, they will all be slaughtered. This is not who I am. I cannot do this. And over the course of about a half an hour of really intense role play, um, the kind that you just immerse yourself in, mm-hmm. um, 
she managed to talk around every other member of the campaign into making a stand, the kind of stand that says, this is probably going to be my last stand, but I'm going to take as many of them with me as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, like hill giants and ogres and all kinds of big, heavy things coming to the city, and they wouldn't. Yeah, they weren't going to stop. So like it was forces cool. of Mordor level of you know yeah. badness amassing outside the walls. Um, they really they had virtually no weaponry with which to um, try to inflict casualties. But what we had were a lot of dwarven engineers, dwarven engineers Yay. in the city. And she decided that, and, you know, even though they're sort of, um, you know, déclassé, they're not, you know, really <laughs> respectable in the same way as, as the human fighters and all of mm-hmm. that, she went to them and said, I have this idea. And they helped her to rig the city, the main city streets, which were above all the big cavernous sewers and tunnels in the way that like Rome and Constantinople were built on these massive, just, you know, many stories high sort of structures. Um, And she worked with the Dwarven engineers to arrange the streets to collapse. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they opened the gates and, of course, the hordes rushed in and um, they were standing off on the walls and they gave the signal. The dwarven engineers blew the thing Mm -hmm. and thousands of them just descended in a pit of rubble, never to be seen again. And then they made their orderly retreat from the city. Yeah. Um, But... It was, you know, she she was the hero to these dwarves who appreciated her taking them into account and, um, you know, leveraging their talents for, um, you know, for not if not a defense of the city, a last uh, a last good stand Mm -hmm. and uh, willing to put herself on the line for them. Uh, I've got to say, I'm I'm kind of impressed. This is the first story I've ever heard. Not only was it an awesome story, but. (laughs) You're the first person I've ever talked to that has said, I played a paladin and it went well. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Um, You know, it was was a setting which was favorable to her having a very starchy sense of honor. Um, Unfortunately, uh, she had a very um, upright, uh, you know, steadfast companion named Max, who I got to run as an NPC companion. um, And... Cam's best friend visited from New Zealand one time over the winter and he wanted to play in the, in the group. And we said, yeah, it's game night. Come on in and play. And so I said, Hey, you know, I've got this, uh, this paladin's companion here. You can take Max for the night. Yeah. So that was good. And he turned out to be even more starchy and upright (laughs) and uh, principled than Mercia and didn't like that she was, uh, you know, negotiating with the terrorists <laughs> at one point. And um, he actually refused to follow her anymore and went off and did his own thing. And at the end of the night, I was both peeved at our good friend and minus one companion. <laughs> it was a, it was her cohort. And, and uh, he, they had, um, they were confronting one of the goddesses, of the ice goddess, the ice queen in Birthright. It was incredibly powerful. You don't just sort of walk up to the ice goddess and say, you know, screw you, I'm not doing this. It was a very, very cool scene where everyone was trying to figure out a way to, to try and finagle this whole thorny problem that they themselves into. 
And this, and so Max, as my friend was playing, said, I can't believe you're talking to this woman. Like, you know, I can't believe you would give up all of your, your beliefs and talk and actually communicate with this evil goddess. I'm out of here. <laughs> Which was so funny because that took more balls than anyone else had, but of course it meant that, you know, he, he was out of the picture. I think she, did she pass him away? The goddess said, okay, bye, and, t- and he just went banished. Yeah, actually, <laughs> his cleric's medallion, or his, you know, the medallion that he carried actually changed on the spot. Um, away from the the goddess that he had uh, allied himself with, so yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Cam, if you would tell me a story about a game that you played in. I have like so many. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so there was a one one campaign that Clark was running that was loosely using the the Wheel of Time D twenty mm-hmm. uh, game, but it wasn't at all set in the Wheel of Time universe at all because. Um, it was his own one, and it was an interesting one where the channelers that were the, the magic-using characters mm-hmm. were all more or less based on Freemason, architect-type, you know, geometric um, spellcasters. I mean, uh, there was a college of architects, and they were able to, to see kind of magical fields throughout the city and wards and ley lines and that kind of thing, and, and understand how structures were built, and then the magic worked on that. Nice. And, yeah, it was cool. And, and you know, there were other things going on. It was a whole city urban kind of campaign, very neat. And Clark had been wanting to do this for quite a while, and I think we showed how intensely broken this system was. Yeah, I remember it, I remember reading that book. <laughs> well, and you see, and the, the D20 game was very cool, and I think it was perfect for capturing Wheel of Time, but there were certain limits put in place for channelers in the Wheel of Time universe that we didn't have. Ah, uh, yeah. And the way that you learn magic was if you see someone else using a spell, or sort of a, a, a rote, or whatever they called them... Yeah, the, 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 pattern, the, weaving, the pattern of the weaving they were right. doing. Yeah. Right, and I started at pretty low level, and so I just had a couple of basic things that I could do, but I was, you know, trying to, to do my best as a character to be this architect who was very ambitious. And while everyone else was worried about inter-gang uh, crime politics and things, I was more interested in seeing, you know, well, you know, what's what's the secrets behind the, the architect's college and then. So, but I, I saw this bad guy using a spell to make a portal, and this, you could make portals to this other void place, and you could enter it, and then you could step out of it somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I made my roll, and I got. I learned this thing. You learned you got the ability to travel at like what level three or something? Right. <laughs> it's totally doable, I guess. Um, <laughs> what what proposes? <laughs> I think to, to to Clark's eternal like you know uh, frustration, I figured out ways of using opening portals that you probably shouldn't use them for. Like at one point, I opened a portal underneath the support pillars for this big building that we were sort of trying to uh, storm into. And I collapsed the entire frontage of the thing because the, the pillars went into the other space mm-hmm. and the whole building just fell down. Yeah. And I'm like, well, surely if you made a big hole, under, if you opened up a portal underneath the foundations, everything's just going to tumble into this hole, right? He's like, yeah, <laughs> okay, I'll do that. To be, to be fair, this could have been predicted um, <laughs> when, when we were on Ambermush together. Uh, I had the character of Julia Barnes, who's a, a human sorceress uh, from 
California in the second series of books. Yeah, she was uh, the girlfriend who yes, was dabbling in the occult. Yeah. And then later Jert's girlfriend, and Cam played Jert for a while after Jim Butcher had finished playing him, um, which had its own, uh, you know, that has a whole backstory too. But um, Jert has the power of being the living Trump, um, and they means he can also open portals yeah. any which way he likes. Um, and and Cam used exploited really is I think the proper verb here um, exploited that power to great effect um, to the point where once uh, he and Julia had a very public fight and and she threw out at him in a moment of bitterness well you never buy me flowers anymore and as he was storming out of the bar where they were having this very public fight uh, he said flowers you want flowers <laughs> and he opened a portal to a shadow in which there was nothing but a constant blizzard of flowers yep, yep. and dropped about a metric ton of them on the entire <laughs> bar. Um, so I think if poor Clark had known uh, his propensity to exploit that particular spell, um, maybe he would have cut it from the game. I had already thought way too much about the coolness of having the ability to access warp gates to places. Mm-hmm. And if I had any power again in a game where the GM had no idea how, like <laughs> <laughs> the one, and this is obviously a different character, but this is the same. This is Jerk too, but it's the same principle. Mm-hmm. Um, he once, I, I said, well, okay, if, if I can open a portal between my the end of my finger on one end and the bottom of the Mariana's trench on the other end, with all that water pressure coming through, it's like a water laser. And I had people saying, where do you come up with this stuff? <laughs> So physics, you know. man. From the physics. twisted creative mind of Mr. Yeah. Camden. So, uh, guys, thank you so very much for taking the time to to talk with me about your characters, your games, your experiences. I have really appreciated it. Well, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Gamer to Gamer. Gamer to Gamer is published by The Tome Show in association with the Vorpal Network. Gamer to Gamer is published under a Creative Commons non-commercial 3.0 share-alike license. The music for the intro and the outro was provided by Brian Boyko and can be found under public domain at freepd.com.